Amen. Isn't that a good song? Uh, only Christians can sing that song. And I hope this morning it is well with your soul. Uh, and the only way that's going to be true is if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. I love that song, and I certainly am thankful for Stephanie choosing it today. It's always a, it's always a special treat for me to sit out, and I just watch people... Uh, when you recognize a song being played and you know it, you're just, you're, you know it, you're singing along and that's an easy song to do that too. That's a great hymn of Christianity. I'm thankful for it. Revelation chapter 14 is your, uh, is your destination this morning. Revelation 14, we're only going to look at the first five verses and then Lord willing tonight, verses six through 11. We've come through chapter 13, uh, some of the darkest and most horrible scenes, I think, in human history. Chapters 12 and 13, uh, you have this unholy trinity that we talked about. The devil, the antichrist, and the false prophet. And it seems like during this time, they are in complete control of everything. And if we, if we think man is depraved today, it really... Uh, it really is exposed, man's depravity is really exposed in the days of the tribulation period where he even further rejects the God that created him and instead there is a global worship of the devil through the Antichrist. And we, we talk about devil worship today and we almost think, well, it's in this part of the world or it's in this particular country or among this people, uh, this people group. During the tribulation period, the worship of the Antichrist is really going to be the worship of the devil, and it's going to be global. The worldwide religion is not going to be Roman Catholicism, like some said. It's not going to be Mormonism. It's not going to be the Jehovah's Witness. It's not going to be uh, Shintoism or Hinduism. It's going to be the worship of the Antichrist and ultimately the worship of the devil globally. Well, we've come through 12 and 13. We're glad to be out of there. I like the way, if you were here on Wednesday night, we're going through this series on Wednesday nights. I've entitled it, He Being Dead Yet Speaketh, because we're, we're playing John Phillips' videos, and he is in heaven, uh, but we're letting him speaketh at Faith Baptist Church for a few Wednesday nights. He made the observation Wednesday night when we were in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. He said, all the way through the book, you'll see... The, the scene goes back and forth between earth and heaven, earth and heaven. Well, we've been focusing on the tragedy going on on earth for a little while. Now we're going to move the scene back up to heaven in Revelation chapter number 14. I, I've entitled this this morning, Once the Storm Has Passed. Revelation 14 is almost like a rainbow at the end of a terrible storm. Because you come through chapter 12 and 13 and you read of all the horrific things that are going to happen on this planet and what the Antichrist is going to do and what the false prophet is going to preach. And now we come through that and we come to chapter 14 and God takes our attention from the horrors of earth and he puts them on the glories of heaven. And so we get a reprieve. And I'm thankful the book of Revelation is structured like this because if it just spent its entirety on the terrible things that are coming on planet, you and I would just feel, we would just feel heavy and burdened. And we should, I should say that, we should feel burdened. But thank God for this reprieve that we get. Revelation chapter 14 has 20 verses in it. It is one long vision that is divided into six parts. 
John is uh, the one doing the speaking, and this chapter serves as a table of contents for the rest of this book. It gives us kind of, kind of an overview. It does look back to the beginning of the tribulation, but then it also takes us all the way up to the millennial kingdom. And so it's an overview of what is coming. I do like what Theodore Epp said. He said, Revelation 14 is not a hodgepodge of visions, for these visions are presented in their logical and chronological order. And so though it may seem it's going back and forth and back and forth, it is not, uh, it's not out of order. There's structure to this chapter. So we see the Lamb of God, who is the focal point of the whole book, we see Jesus now brought back to center stage. You know what? I, I wrote myself a note in here. Wouldn't it be great if we could keep Jesus Christ at the very center of all that we do in our personal life and in our church? Wouldn't that be great if we could just live our life like that, not waver left or to the right, but he just stays front and center? Well, in chapter 14, the Lord Jesus is put back to the front and center These 144,000 that we met back in chapter 7, they were selected by God, they were sealed by God, and they had a specific mission throughout the whole world. Now they are standing back in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read these these verses and then pray and ask God to bless our time together. Revelation chapter 14, verse number 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Sion. And with him a hundred and forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty-four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. We're going to stop right there because an angel is going to show up in verse number 6. And the, the, the uh, emphasis is going to completely shift. And Lord willing, we'll get into that tonight. Let's stop today, though, and talk about once this storm has passed. Father, thank you for your word. And we take great confidence in knowing that the Holy Bible is the word of God, that every part of it has been inspired by you, and you have preserved it for us in all truth so that we can accept what you say here. And we're looking at this as prophecy, but... Lord, we're sure that these things are going to come to place. We look forward to the day that we're standing before you, like these 144,000, that we stand before you with no fault in us anymore. No sin, no darkness. We can't wait to see you face to face. While we live here in this world and in these bodies, we pray, God, that you'd help us to honor you in all that we do and say. And we're only going to do that, Lord, as we, as we trust in you and we follow your word and we choose to be filled with your spirit. In fact, Lord, I pray that today. I I pray that you would fill every Christian in here this morning with your Holy Spirit. We choose that so that your spirit can do his work in our hearts today. Use your word to encourage believers this morning, that it's not always going to be bad. I pray that you would use your word to convict lost people that might be here today or joining us online. 
and letting them know that it's going to get much worse if they choose to continue to reject Christ or save people that need to be saved today. Bless our time in your word. Help us to be submissive to it. We pray in your name. Amen. So here we are, back up in heaven with these 144,000 they have been preaching. Uh, you remember there's, there's two different groups. One's huge, one's not so huge. There's two different groups going throughout the world preaching the gospel. First, there is this group, 144,000 evangelists, Jewish men that God has chosen uh, to send throughout the whole world. And during the tribulation period, they are preaching the gospel of Christ. They're preaching the same gospel, the same Jesus that is being preached today. And then there's a much smaller group. It's a group of two. And these are two witnesses they are, their ministry seems to be confined to the city of Jerusalem, though I believe it will be globally transmitted. They stay in Jerusalem and they're preaching the same Jesus and they're preaching the same gospel. We, uh, and I have to confess I learned something this week. In fact, I spent, have you ever got a, well, Google will do this to you. Have you ever spent more time researching something, probably more time than you should have? Have you ever done that? You come across something, something comes in your mind, and you end up in a Google search. The next thing you know, it's an hour later, and you've been Google searching. You got off on some rabbit trail and just went, went off. I've made an assumption, I think, um, when it comes to these 144,000, that I, wanna, I want to, um, and I'm correcting this in my mind, but maybe it's something that uh, you already knew. I've always assumed, because of what we read about the two witnesses that there will come a time when the protection of God is withdrawn from the 144,000 like it will be the two witnesses and they're going to be killed by Antichrist. What I learned this last week, and this is where I spent, because I, I tried to look as hard as I could, and if, if, you, can, if you know of a scripture that changes this, you let me know. There's not a place in the New Testament where it says the 144,000 are going to be killed. In fact, the teaching of the scripture seems to say that the 144,000 are going to survive all seven years of the tribulation period, and they're going to usher right into the millennial kingdom. Now, there's two witnesses back there in, uh, back there in chapter 7 or 8. We met them. We know they're going to be killed by Antichrist. There comes a time when their divine protection is withdrawn, and the Bible says they're going to be killed. You remember that? They lay in the streets for three and a half days. The whole world does what? rejoices over their death. They're glad to see those two nut jobs gone. And then after three and a half days, the Bible says that the Spirit of God enters into those two prophets and they stand up. Boy, that'll wake some people up. And then the next thing you know, the Bible says they're taken up to heaven. I don't know that it's a quick rapture like you and I, Lord willing, one day will experience. I almost make it, I, I almost make it to, I almost read it like it does when the Lord Jesus ascended back into heaven and they just stood there and watched him go. I can just see God doing that with those two prophets. That's going to put the fear in some people. But when you read about the 144,000, it goes from their commission in chapter 7 to chapter number 14 where we are today and they're in the presence of the Lord. Rejoicing. It never says one time that the Antichrist kills them. So I think that what happens is they're around the entire time. I want you to picture that with all of the death going on around the whole world. An innumerable number of tribulation saints being slaughtered during the tribulation period. 
the Bible seems to give evidence that all 144,000 of these witnesses, these, these evangelists throughout the world, it seems to say all 144,000 of them are going to survive the seven-year tribulation period and will be here when Jesus returns to set up his millennial kingdom. Now, if you find a scripture that contradicts that, I would love for you to let me know. I just couldn't this last week. And that's one of those Google search things I got into. I just started everything I could look at to find where these guys get killed. It doesn't appear that they do. Uh, They're going to be, I believe, they're going to be part of the remnant that is here that welcomes Jesus Christ back to the earth at the end of the tribulation period. This is a very, I'm, I'm saying all that to say this, this is a unique group of men. It's a unique group of men. And so let's look at these, uh, these evangelists today. They've weathered this terrible storm. And now when we, when we come to chapter 14, they're in the presence of God. They're in the presence of the Lamb, it says. So let's look and see what it says. First of all, I want you to see that they are, in verse number one, a rescued army. And I, that's how I see them. I, I see them as an army of God, don't you? They're, they're uh, recruited by God. They're chosen by him. And then he commissions them and he sends them out to do their mission. It says in verse number one, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion and with him an hundred and forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. Let's just review some things that we know about them. This 144,000. First of all, they will be protected by God. They will be protected by God. Now, back in chapter 7, when we first met them, it says in verses 3 and 4, uh, he's, God is sending this angel down to earth. And he says to this angel, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And then in the following verses, it details twelve thousand from every tribe of the nation. They've been protected by God through the entire tribulation. Millions, perhaps, will have been killed and executed by the Antichrist and his armies. Christians who've come to Christ during the tribulation, but not these 144,000. I think Antichrist will harass them. I certainly think he's going to hunt for them, but he will have no power over them. They're untouchable because it says both in chapter 7 and it says here again in chapter 14, they've been sealed. The name of God has been written in their foreheads and they are supernaturally protected. Now, we don't have time to turn there, but if you're, if you're taking notes and would like to write this down, write down these, these four scripture references. 2 Corinthians 1.22, Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 13, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, and all four of those verses are going to tell you that you also have been sealed. And I have been sealed as a Christian. When you got saved, you and I were sealed by the Spirit of God. Sealed in a different way than they have been. They have been sealed, I believe, to where they're not going to be killed by Antichrist. He's got their name in their foreheads, the Bible says. You and I have been sealed, and although you and I may suffer a physical death, we may die on this earth. 
We have been sealed to inherit eternal life. We've been sealed, the Bible says, unto the day of redemption. Every person that God seals arrives in his presence. So when we come to chapter 14, we don't read that there were 143,999 that made it. We read that the 144,000 that were sealed in chapter 7 show up in heaven in chapter number 14. That's because who God seals, he keeps. That's because once you're saved, you're always saved. God sealed these men, and this is true of all saints. Ephesians 4.30 says that we are sealed unto the day of redemption. My point in this is that Jesus gives eternal security to everyone to whom he gives eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And if he's given you that life, then he's given you the security that comes along with it. He sealed them. They show up in heaven. He sealed you as a Christian. You're going to be in heaven. Jesus said in John 6 that he would not lose one single person that the father gave to him. So don't let anyone tell you that you can be saved and then find yourself unsaved. That's just not possible. If you have been born into the family of God, you're in. If I've been born into the family of God, I'm in. These 144,000, they are protected by God. He has sealed them and they show up, every one of them, in heaven just as they were counted in chapter 7. Now here they are in chapter 14. They have been protected by God. Second thing is this. They will be presented to God. Scripture says here that they meet the Lamb on Mount Sion. Mount Sion is the ancient name of the city of Jerusalem. Um, You can find that in 2 Samuel 5 and also in Psalm chapter number 48. I think this word is being used poetically here. Um, One of the reasons I, I don't think this is a picture of the millennial kingdom yet is because This chapter lays out chronologically. And there still has yet to come a final judgment later in this chapter on the earth. So this can't be the millennial kingdom. I think Mount Sion is used poetically here to indicate heaven. And one reason is because it says that they are standing specifically. It says that they are standing before the throne of God. The throne of Jesus Christ will be established on this earth in the city of Jerusalem during the millennial kingdom. That's absolutely true. The throne of God is never seen outside of heaven. So I think these 144,000 are in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this is talking about a heavenly scene. Now, I may be wrong on that. This is one of those things you can't be completely uh, uh, adamant about. I believe this is a scene in heaven. Some believe that this is a scene on earth and that this is literally Jerusalem and it's during the kingdom. It doesn't matter. uh, It doesn't matter doctrinally. Chronologically, I just don't know that it fits. In verse number three here, you have heavenly singing. In verse number five, the angels, as I said, are standing before God's throne. God's throne is always in heaven. This is not the throne of the Lamb. That's differentiated in the book of Revelation. This is specifically referred to as the throne of God. These evangelists have been rescued from a world gone mad. They're at home with Jesus Christ, 
And I, if, if I don't know uh, how you feel about where they're at. Are they in Jerusalem or are they in heaven? I believe they're in heaven in this particular, in this particular passage. But I do know this. Whether they're in heaven or whether they're in the city of Jerusalem, I do know that God has prepared a better place for all of his saints. And I am so thankful for it. Um, I, I, you know, my favorite TV preacher, Joel Osteen, wrote that book, Your Best Life Now. And I'm telling you the truth. I, if this is anyone's best life now on this planet at this time in world history, what a sorry life. I am so thankful that God has promised us that there is a place waiting for us that looks nothing like this world. The life I will live in heaven and you will live in heaven if you know Jesus Christ will be nothing like the life you are living now. The experiences that you and I will have in heaven one day will be nothing like you are having now. Some of you went through a process to get out of bed today. It takes a little bit to do that. We're not just going to pop out like we used to. There's a better there's a better day coming. I'm so thankful that God has promised us a place that he is custom making for us. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. I have ne- Terry and I have never had a custom-built home, but I've got one coming. You've got one coming. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. He's preparing a place for us. When we get to Revelation 21 and 22, we're going to learn a lot more about that place. These 144,000 have served their Lord. They have completed their mission, and now they're standing in his presence. Not only are they protected, will they be protected by him, they will be presented before him, to him, and they're going to stand before him. They are a rescued army. God sealed them, and he kept them, and he's going to do the same for you. They're a rescued army. And verses 2 and 3, they're a rejoicing army. This is that song. This is that part of that song that we were talking about just a little bit ago. It says in verse 2, I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, as the voice of a great thunder, and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. See that last phrase, they were redeemed from the earth? That's another thing that points me that they're in heaven at this point. So verse number two tells us about a new setting. A new setting. They've been brought out of the terrors of the tribulation. They have saw it all. I mean, the things that we're talking about that we're not going to experience, thank the Lord. I was talking to a Brother Tony about that earlier this morning. He said he saw this movie about the rapture this last week. And, I, and he said, I'm just glad I'm not going to be here after that. And I, Me too. So we're talking about things in the scripture that we are not going to see. But these 144,000, they're going to go through all of those things. They're going to see them firsthand. But now they're in a new setting. They're, they're home. 
The Bible says that they're in heaven. There's this great contrast between this world and our heavenly home. This world is filled with pain and sorrow and tears. It's going to be even more so during the tribulation period. We can't imagine how bad that's going to be. But none of those things are going to be found in heaven. It says in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There will be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are all passed away. This world, death and sorrow and pain and tears. That world, none of that. None of those things will be found. Here we have disease and death, not there. Here we battle Satan and sin, not there. Revelation 21, that same chapter, and by the time we get to Revelation 21, you all are going to know it really well, but chapter 21 and verse number 20, uh, let's see, chapter number 21 and verse, where did I just lose it? Boy, don't you hate when you do this? It's, uh, let's start reading verse number 23. It says, And the city had no need of sun, neither of moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Here it is, verse 27. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. That first part of verse number 27. In no wise will there be anything there to defile. We battle sin and Satan here, not there. And when we read the first part here of chapter 14, they're rejoicing at what's going on. John Phillips, in his, uh, in his uh, message to us on Wednesday night, he said they're rejoicing in heaven right now. Now we're looking at a completely different setting of rejoicing. And one day, you and I are going to take our last steps in this world. Now, it may be before the rapture or it may be because of the rapture, but we are going to leave this world. And when we do, we are going to join into, into that rejoicing. I've got family and friends, and so do you, that are already in heaven, and they're worshiping the Lamb right now. One day, the 144,000 are going to join that worship, and they're going to join that praise. They've suffered through planet Earth, the tribulation. They've gone through all of that. Now they are in a brand new setting. They're at home, thank the Lord. And one day, you and I will be too. Not only a new setting, then verse 3 tells us about this new song. When they get to heaven, this 144,000, this group of, of, of evangelists, when they get there, they're going to fill heaven with their worship and with their praise. We can't really put ourselves in their shoes, but try for just a moment, would you? Try thinking about if you had spent the last seven years watching hell be turned loose on the earth. And no matter where you went, what country, what culture, no matter where you went, you saw the work of the Antichrist and the false prophet, really the work of Satan being accomplished on the planet. 
For the last seven years, you watched those that you personally led to Christ. You preached the gospel, you taught the gospel, and someone came forward and got saved. And then you saw that person executed by the Antichrist and his army. You've been doing this for seven years. You've seen the famine and the war and the godlessness and the devil worship. You've seen, you've seen the Antichrist and the false prophets perform miracles that you thought only God could do. You went through that for seven years. And now all of that is eternally past. And you're standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything, every bit of suffering and, and struggle that you've ever had, it's over with. They show up to sing after experiencing all of that. You see, even the tribulation saints who are martyred are not going to experience what these 144,000 did because they were martyred during the tribulation. They ended up in heaven. But for seven years, they suffered under the, uh, under the, the, the leadership of the Antichrist in this world. And now they're in heaven. And the Bible says that they start singing. And they start singing by themselves. Did you read verse 3? That word understand, or that word learn means understand. That word in verse 3 where it says it's a song no one, no one else can learn, it means no one else can understand. You know why? Because you and I will never go through what those 144,000 are going to go through. That is going to be a song of praise to God based on a testimony that I can't, I won't know about. Because I'll be in heaven. I'm, escape, I'm escaping, aren't you? I'm escaping the terror of the tribulation period. I can't sing that song. Uh, you get you get some of these testimony songs, you know. And there's there's a bunch of songs out there written as testimony songs in Christianity, and it talks. And I've heard people sing those songs, and it talks about how my great life of sin and what I used to be, and and, and the terrible life they lived and everything. And I look at that person, I'm like, that person got saved when they were seven years old. They never were drunk. They are singing a song that is not theirs. That 144,000 are going to sing a song that they own. The Bible says in verse number 3 that no man could learn that song but the 144,000. Nobody can understand where they're praising God from. You know, some of you have a testimony like that. You don't have a testimony, a background like mine. Your, your coming to Christ is different than mine. We serve the same Savior. We got saved the same way. But where I was saved from and where you were saved from are two completely different backgrounds. And you've got your own song that you sing. There's a song, an old southern gospel song. And it's, it, it's a, it's, I think it's called a song the angels can't sing or something like that. And it starts out saying, angels never knew the joy that was mine. And it talks about that saying... Angels don't know what it's like to have been a sinner that was redeemed fully by grace. Well, that's how these guys are here. They're singing a new song. That phrase, new song, that little two-word phrase is found seven times in the King James Old Testament. Every time it's used, it's always used to praise God for something great he has done. Every time. The phrase, new song. An example is Psalm 98 and verse 1. 
Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath, put, he hath done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. Psalm chapter 40 and verse 3, talking about God lifting me up out of a horrible pit. And it says, he has put a new song in my mouth. Every time the phrase new, new song is used, it's something great that God has done. And they're singing a new song. Dr. Phillips, in his, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, said, The book of Revelation, so full of sorrow, strife, and tears, is also a book filled with song. Bring the lamb into the picture, and immediately there's a song. Jesus shows up in verse number 1, and by verse number 3, the 144,000 are singing their new song. Now, why is, it, why is it that that song is restricted to the 144,000? Well, I've said that's their experience. Henry Morris, in his book, The Revelation Record, says it a lot more eloquently. He says it like this. Although in one sense all saved people have been redeemed from the earth, these could know the meaning of such a theme in a more profound way than all others. They had been saved after the rapture at that time in history when man's greatest persecutions and God's greatest judgments were on the earth. And so they sing to the Lord this new song. They are a rescued army. They are a rejoicing army. And in verses 4 and 5, we find that word redeemed. They are a redeemed army. Redeemed. There are a lot of men and women, and you can think of them, and if, if we went around the room today, we would come up with different names. There are a lot of men and women who have made their mark for Christ throughout human history. But this group is a very unique group of believers, 144,000 of them, and verses 4 and 5 describe them to us, and they honestly, they describe what you and I ought to be as Christians today. I want to walk through these. Let's walk through these two verses and see how this redeemed bunch of men are described. And then let's draw the parallel. This is really how we ought to be living as well. The first thing I'd like you to notice is in the first part of verse 4, note that they are spotless. It says in verse number 4, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are spotless. They're morally pure. Keep this in mind, there will be no restraints during the tribulation period. This, if you think the world is sin-cursed now, pardon my grammar, but you ain't seen nothing yet. And these guys are going to, these guys in a day where sexuality is going to run rampant, sexual immorality is going to run rampant, they're not going to give in to the sins of the flesh. They're not going to marry. They're not going to, uh, they're not going to be, the Bible talks about it being defiled by women. They're not going to, they're not going to be sexually active in or out of marriage. They're virgins. It goes on to say they won't either be spiritual adulterers like the children of Israel were. They're not going to chase after false gods. <coughs> the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to set up this false religion. The book of Revelation calls her the great whore in chapter 14 and verse 8 and chapter 17 and verse 1. But these men, not only are they going to stay morally pure, they're going to stay spiritually pure. That's, ex 
That's exactly what God expects from you and me. Not to, not to stay virgins your whole life, but to stay morally pure. He expects us to be morally pure and spiritually pure, not to chase after the things of the world. Our, our Sunday school lesson this morning talking about Vanity Fair and Spurgeon's comments. Dr. Manley read a couple of Spurgeon's comments on how the, the church in, in, in Spurgeon's day, back nearly 200 years ago, He's talking about the worldliness of the church. He'd have had a heart attack and died in 2023 if he walked into most so-called churches today. Stay spiritually and morally pure. They are, first of all, this group of men, they're spotless. That's a good example for us. We ought to stay pure in this world. Second, they are surrendered. It says in the second phrase of verse number four, it says, these are they which follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. They didn't turn back for fear. The Antichrist, with all of his power, is pursuing them for seven years. They didn't turn back. They followed the Lamb whithersoever he goeth, even though it was dangerous. I like that word, follow, don't you? Literally, that word means to be in the same way. To be in the same way. That makes sense, doesn't it? If you are following me, or if I am following you, there's a picture drawn where... You're walking this path, and I'm walking right behind you. It's being in the same way. God wants you to be in the same way he is. God wants you to be in his way. These men walk. You remember David used this phrase all the time in the Old Testament. They walked in the ways of the Lord. I love that verse. I've mentioned it to you before. You remember when Abraham Abraham sent his chief servant a guy named Eleazar, he, went him, he sent him to find a wife for his, uh, for his son Isaac. Do you remember that? Parents, don't you wish we could still do that today? Ooh, that'd be good. Abraham sends Eleazar, and he says, here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to take any, don't bring back any prospects from here. I want you to go back to this part of the world and bring, bring my daughter, or bring my uh, daughter-in-law, bring my son a wife. So he goes back and he's giving his testimony. He, he finally hooks up with a girl named Rebecca and her family. And he's giving his testimony to this family. And this is what he says. I being in the way, the Lord led me. I want to I take Eleazar's testimony and tell you today. That is a great thing for you and I to do. If we would just be in the right way, God will lead us. These men followed the lamb whithersoever he went. That's a good example for you and me. Be surrendered. Wherever God leads, follow. The door that he opens, the direction he gives, the path he lays out, the instruction he teaches, follow him. The Bible says that wherever the lamb went, they followed. That's exactly what God expects of us. Amos asked this question, can two walk together except they be agreed? How can I how can I say I'm walking with God if I'm not following his way? If I'm not following his word? I mentioned to you before and I, I don't have time this morning to go through that whole illustration again, but I've mentioned before, it seems like it was within the last year or so, the testimony of a man named William Borden, who was born into the Borden family and Many of you, especially with gray hair in here, you'll remember the Borden Dairy Corporation. William Borden didn't make all that money. He was born into that family. 
He became a Christian early on in life, and he graduated from high school when he was 16 years old. And by the time he graduated from high school, he was already convinced that God had called him to be a missionary to Asia, the Middle East, and in Europe. And so he he gave up what could have been a life of luxury and wealth and ease. He gave that up to become a missionary that preached the gospel. To commemorate that decision, he wrote two words in his Bible. And he wrote the words, no reserves. So he set off. After he graduated from Yale University, he went on to Princeton Seminary. At that time, Princeton was a seminary that would train men for the ministry. Graduating from Yale, he could have gone into any business he wanted to. If he went, didn't want the family business, he could have gone into any business he wanted to and probably been very successful at it. But he stuck to that decision that he made as a high school graduate when he said, I'm going to be a missionary. And when he, when he determined again to go on to Princeton and to train for God's word, he opened his Bible and under the words, no reserves, he wrote, no retreat. And then he finished his seminary there and he studied Arabic in Egypt because he wanted to reach Muslims in China. That's quite a trip, isn't it? Go to Egypt to learn Arabic so I can get to China to reach Muslims. He died while he was in that training. He died from spinal meningitis, never reaching China to preach to the Muslims where God, where he felt God had called him. Never got to that intended mission field. He impacted a lot of people during his life with his testimony, with his teaching and preaching and just the choices that he was making. And when he was ill and didn't know he was dying, but when he was ill with the, with the illness that would eventually kill him, he wrote in his, he wrote in his Bible, No Regrets. No reserves, no retreat, no regrets. For you and I, Christian, no reserves. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God, holy and acceptable unto him, which is your reasonable service. No reserves. No retreats. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. No regrets. 2 Timothy 4.7, Paul's waiting for his execution. I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. These men were spotless before God. They were surrendered to God. They are also symbolic Now, they're literal physical men, but by symbolic, I mean they are representative of what you and I should be. They they represent what we are to be in Christ. They are saved and sealed. We are saved and sealed. They went throughout the whole world telling people about Jesus Christ. You and I are to go throughout the whole world telling people about Christ. This is what we're to be about. These 144,000, they are going to be real, literal, physical men, yes. But they also symbolize what we should be in our service to Jesus Christ. 
They are the first fruits. It says there, uh, it says that at the end of verse four, they are the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. They were the first converts during the tribulation period. They're the first fruits of all those that were going to come after them. They were the, they were the promise of what was coming of millions. What I believe will be millions being saved during Uh, During the tribulation period. I can't fathom how hard their ministry is going to be. I I just can't. It's, It's hard enough, isn't it? Trying to minister to people and to reach people in the world in which you and I live. They're, they're battling worldliness and materialism and, and, and the pull of, of, uh, of wealth. It's hard in this day and age to reach people, but I can't imagine how hard it's going to be in their day. And yet God is going to use them to reach what the Bible says is an innumerable number of people who are going to be saved under their ministry. They show what we should, they show what we should be about. Only heaven, and we we read about, don't we? We read about in this book the number of people, the innumerable number of people that's going to be in heaven because of this 144,000. But you know, here's the truth. Only heaven is going to reveal the impact of your life in this world. You're not going to know how many people have come to Christ because of you and your testimony until you get to heaven. Spurgeon didn't know. David Livingston didn't know. David Cross didn't know. You cannot know until you get to heaven what the impact of eternity will be with your life if you will just be surrendered to him. You think those 144,000, do you think they knew or do you think they will know that millions are going to be saved because of their preaching? Do you think they know that up front? I don't. I don't know that they know that. What What an awesome thought that you can tell someone about Christ and a ripple effect can begin that you won't know the end of until eternity. That's what's going on here. They, they're real literal people, but they're also symbolic. They, they reveal some things about you and me. And the last thing I want to tell you about those men in verse number 5 is they are sanctified. The Bible says there, in them there is no guile. Did you see that? No guile. There's no deceit. That, that word guile paints, it's the picture of a decoy, something that appears to be real, but it's not. That's not these guys. It says in verse 5 that in their mouth was found no guile. They are, found, they are without fault before the throne of God. What, what are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying these guys are going to come out and they're going to be proclaiming, we are here on behalf of the true God. Not this guy over here who set himself up to be God. We're here proclaiming the true God. That's what they're going to say. And they're going to be right. They're not being deceitful. A decoy is something that looks real, but isn't. I, I like watching these turkey these turkey hunts. You know, spring turkey hunt took place a little while ago. I like watching these videos. These guys put these turkey decoys out. I don't know if you hunt turkeys or not, but here's what happens. They put these turkey decoys out. And that big old Tom, he comes strutting into, he comes strutting into that, that kill zone is what it is. And he sees that thing and he just struts up to that turkey and he pops out his wings, you know, and he tries to look as big and tough as he can. He fans out his big old tail. And if that, if that, uh, opposition, that competition turkey there, if he doesn't leave, which he's not going to because he's a decoy, 
All of a sudden, that big old fat Tom Turkey, he just attacks him. He just goes off on him. And he's hitting that thing. He'll jump on his back and he hits him with his beak and trying to get him with his spurs. He's going off on him. It's because that decoy looks real, but it's not. It looks like a turkey, but it's not a turkey. These men are not like that. They're not decoys. They're going to come out of the chute saying they are evangelists speaking on behalf of the Most High God, and that's exactly who they are. They're proclaiming truth. They have been set apart for a special work by God until their work is complete, and so have you. You have, Christian, you have been set apart by God to do his work until he's done with you. And then either by death or by rapture, he's going to take you to heaven, just like he's going to take these men to heaven. So what I'm saying in this is they are who they claim to be. And you and I ought to be without guile. You claim to be a Christian this morning? Be a Christian this morning. Be who you claim to be. Let your walk match your words. If I say I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, don't let me be found out here living like the world. Don't let my mouth contain guile. Don't let me be a decoy, something that appears to be one thing, but not really. Be who you claim to be. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6 says, He that saith he abideth in him, in Christ, ought himself also to walk, even as Jesus walked. Be who you claim to be. We're faulty. At best, you and I are faulty. We sin, don't we? We do. But that's not to be our norm. That's not to be our pattern. That's to be the abnormality for the Christian. We ought to be sanctified. There's a day coming when you and I, it's going to be said, you see what it says there in verse number 5? They are without fault before the throne of God. There's a day coming when you and I are going to be found without fault before the throne of God. If you look close enough at me or if I look close enough at you today, we're going to find fault. But Christian, that does not need to be our pattern. Our pattern ought to be one of growing Christ-likeness. So in this last little section here where it's describing these 144,000, let me just ask you this morning, does your claim match up with your walk? These men showed up saying they were speaking on behalf of the Most High God, but they also lived like they were speaking on behalf of the Most High God. The Bible says they weren't defiled. They followed the Lamb whithersoever he went. And it says they're found without fault before the throne of God. Is your life reflecting the Christianity that you claim? I'm not talking about perfection because you and I both know we're not going to meet that standard, are we? There's no way. But that pursuit of godliness, that hunger and thirst after righteousness, that desire to be more like Jesus than I am like myself, that ought to be in us and growing. The message of these, the message of these 144,000 showing up in heaven today is they picture you and I. We have a mission now, just like they will have a mission in their day. They're going to get to heaven when their mission is completed, just like you and I are going to get to heaven when our mission is done. 
But while they're completing their mission, they're doing it without guile. And they're, they're doing it in a way that reflects Jesus Christ. And that's the call to you this morning. Is while you're still here, you're still breathing. You walked in here today. And you, some of you walked in with help, but you walked in. While we're here, let's be who we claim to be. Let's be like Jesus. Perfectly? Not yet. That day's coming, 1 John chapter 3. When we see him, we'll be like him. Until that day, we are in this process of sanctification. We are in the process of becoming more and more like him and less and less like us. That ought to be our heart. Would you stand with your heads bowed this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for prophecy. It amazes me how much you tell us about what's coming. And I pray that we wouldn't waste it. Help it not to be just a gathering of knowledge on our part, but to be a good warning for us. Lord, we look at these 144,000 and we see what they lived through and how they lived through it. They stayed faithful. I love that phrase where you said they just followed the lamb, whithersoever he goeth. And wherever Christ led them and what Christ led them to say, that's where they went. That's what they said. Lord, may that mark me. Help my heart to be more willing every day to be more like Jesus Christ. So, Lord, that means that there are things in my life that you have to remove and you have to convict me of. And I pray that every one of your children in this room today would have a heart that says to you, would you take away what doesn't look like Jesus? Make us like Christ. I pray for those that might be here today, God, that don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. They've never come to the place where they've asked Christ to forgive their sins and they've placed their faith in you to cleanse them and to save them from the sure judgment that is coming. I pray that they would be saved today. Whatever your work is in our hearts, God, would you do it and would you help us to be submissive to it? I pray in your name. Amen.